remember when I was younger, <clears throat> which seems like just yesterday. Um, that's kind of a joke because we were all younger yesterday. You know, it, it's the old, um, you've never been this old before, but this is the youngest you'll ever be from here on out, that type of a joke. Not real funny, but okay, let's move on. I can remember when I was much younger and I found out about a group of writings that were not technically, the, well not technically, not even remotely, the Bible, but pertained to biblical things. And it's happened over and over as I was young and growing up, I was exposed to a group of writings called the Pseudepigrapha. And the pseudepigraphal writings are writings that were done, a lot of them, in between the Old and the New Testament. And they were clearly writings that some people knew and read and, and were familiar with because in the New Testament book of Jude, there's at least one quotation and there are several references to the pseudepigrapha. And I remember thinking, oh, this is really cool. This is going to give me more knowledge than I get just studying the Bible. And then I remember when uh, there was a, a, a group of scrolls that came out from a place in Egypt. They were called the Nag Hammadi Library. And I remember thinking, oh, this is really cool. This is going to give me some perspective of, of, of faith and, and, and God that, that I don't just get in the Bible. Don't get me wrong, I've always treasured Scripture, and it's the holy Word of God. But I'm always trying to get more. I always want to know Him better. And, and those writings were mildly disappointing. They told me more about the people who wrote them than they did about the God of whom I, I needed and wanted to, to learn more. And then, as I got a little older, I began to realize that the Bible itself contains so much more about God and who He is than we generally get just by going to church and even just by going to class. Think about it this way. Imagine yourself as the senior pastor of a church. You've got to prepare a sermon every Sunday morning. And you know that there are going to be hundreds or hear thousands of people who are going to hear that sermon. And you're going to have people who have been walking devoutly with the Lord for decades and decades and decades. But you're also going to have people who come in who don't know the difference between God and a, and a, and a stick in the ground. You're going to have people who are not only saved but are soul winners. And you're also going to have the unsaved. You're going to have people whose top priority is God. And you're going to have people who really are just in a desperate need at the moment. And you've got to do a sermon. You've got 25 minutes to speak to all of those people. It's really hard to do. There's only so much you can do. It's one of the reasons I love life groups. It allows me to stand up here and to teach, knowing that we'll have a broad spectrum of people but able to say this is the focus of the class for those who, who find this good for their station in life, plug in, tune in. For those who don't, no sweat. Tons of other classes. Tons of other opportunities. And so it, it's delightful for me to have this as, as, as an opportunity to teach and to, to speak, but what I'm really focused on in this series is making sure that we understand God's character, who God is, 
in brand new ways. Not new because we're looking at the pseudepigrapha or we're looking at the Nag Hammadi library or we're looking at some other uh, uh, um, non-biblical resource. Rather, we are plumbing the depths of God by plumbing the depths of his revelation of himself in his word. And that is a supreme opportunity. So what I want to do this week is I want to take another running start from the beginning, but we're going to take it further than we have. And we're going to take the first three classes and kind of make sure we've got them all wrapped up together as we launch into where we're going next week. So this, I do it, I, do, I seem to do everything in threes, um, except have kids. We did five. Um, set the table is the first thing I want to do. I want to make sure we're all there together. Then after that, we're going to prepare the food. And I got grief over the cheeseburger last week, so I tried to find healthy food we'd prepare today, though that cheeseburger did look better. And then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to take home some leftovers when we're done. <laughs> what do we have we can package up and walk out the door? So if we're going to do that, let's start by setting the table. We're talking about biblical law, but there's a very good question of what is law? And Black's Law Dictionary is a place you can go and you can look it up and it'll tell you law is a system of principles and rules of human conduct which is laid down, ordained, or established. This is what you cannot do. These are the laws by which you drive. These are the laws by which you get married. These are the laws by which you pass on your estate. These are the laws by which you educate your children. But if someone says you can't do that under the law, lawyers, at least some legal scholars in law school, will ask this question. Says who? Says who? Who has the right to tell me what I can and cannot do? Now, if you take way law, you've got anarchy. And there are some anarchists in this world who say we shouldn't have any law. It's every man for himself, every woman for herself. And we'll get along fine. As long as I have the right to beat you up if you bother me. Of course, anarchy, from my perspective, doesn't work too well because there are always going to be people who need law. So who says you can't do something? Is it the Supreme Court? Do we just go to the U.S. Supreme Court and let them decide? Well, who are they? I mean, if any of you are watching who are on the Supreme Court, I have great respect for you. I am a lawyer. All eight of you. And, and Judge Barrett, if you make number nine, I have great respect for you too. Um, but I mean, why do those nine people get to decide? Is it the U.S. Constitution? I get emails from people saying that's not constitutional. Or I don't like the way the Constitution's being interpreted because the Founding Fathers thought it should be done this way and these people are doing it that way. So do we just say the Constitution gets, is that the ultimate arbitrator? Well, who decided the Constitution? Do you know who was King of England when we declared our independence? It was King George III. That's his coronation portrait. Looks like a nice enough fella. Red Latin. He was the grandson of King George II. King George III's daddy, the Prince of Wales back then, died. 
So King George III assumed the throne upon the death of granddaddy. So King George III is, is, and King George III assumed the throne. And do you know what scripture was still around then? Romans 13, 1 through 2, which we pull out when we like it and we put on the shelf when we don't. It says, Paul writing to the church at Rome, which was the empire capital where Caesar and the Senate met and decided the law for the entire empire. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Whoa. That's being barked at you while the king of England is telling you, I have authority because God gave it to me. And you are to submit to me. That's what the Holy Bible says. And if you resist me, you're resisting God. And so with that front and center, our founding fathers said we declare ourselves independent of the king. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. The Declaration of Independence was signed by these founding fathers that said God has bestowed on us certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And there was a list of grievances against the King of England for ways he had violated the fair rights everyone should have, which I might include professionally, <clears throat> includes the right to a trial by jury. The government's not allowed to take away your life or your liberty or your property without fellow citizens deciding whether or not that should be done. A jury of your peers. But this passage is still there. And this passage is used by presidents who say, you got to follow me. This passage has been used by kings and queens who say they have the right to rule. This passage has been used by popes to say God's given them the authority to tell you what to do and what not to do. And it should not stun you to find out this passage was not used, but the idea behind the passage was used by the pharaohs of Egypt. The pharaohs themselves said, we are God. Hence, we speak with the authority of God. Somewhere in the midst of a law, you've got to be able to answer that question, says who? And any lawgiver knows they've got to ultimately provide a reason that they're an authority that should be followed. In America, the authority is supposed to be the will of the people. But it's the will of the people under an agreed construct that we live But is that really what we should be doing? Read Plato's Republic sometime. Okay, maybe not. It would. Sorry, I just really nerded out on you. But book eight of Plato's Republic talks about all the different forms of government. And he looks at it philosophically. Which ones are more, more better? <laughs> which ones are, are, are more profitable for people to live under? 
Miss Carolyn said, Mark, you got to talk more about the Code of Hammurabi. Well, it fits in, Miss Carolyn, for me to do that today. If you go see the obelisk made out of stone where all of this writing in cuneiform is in the bottom part, up at the top is an icon of sorts carved into the stone. And that icon, if you look at it closely, has Shamash, the god of judgment, holding out his ruling scepter to Hammurabi the king. Hammurabi the king, you'll notice, is not bowing like you should bow before a god. He's standing up. And if you look really carefully, not only is there the rod of power, the, which was the ruling staff, but there's a ring that's being held by Shamash. And that ring is the ring of authority, the king's seal. Hammurabi's law should have been followed by those people, Hammurabi said, because he had the authority... To rule the people given to him by the gods. And before you read the laws of Hammurabi. By the way, let's date Hammurabi. After Abraham by several centuries. Before the Exodus. Hammurabi is while the Israelites are in Egypt. Think about it in biblical chronology in that way. But before you get to the laws in Hammurabi, you read him explaining why you ought to listen to him and follow the law. When Anu the sublime, Anu was uh, head god, king of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Anuraki were the, um, a council of gods, okay? And Bel, who's the god of heaven and earth, assigned to Marduk, Marduk's the war god, the overruling son of Ea, who's the god of righteousness, dominion over earthly man, they called Babylon the nation, the empire, by his illustrious name, made it great on earth, and founded an everlasting kingdom in it. And then Anu and Bel called by name me, Hammurabi, the exalted prince, to bring about the rule of righteousness in the land so that I should rule over the black-headed people like Shamash. I should be the ruler. The gods made me ruler. The gods gave me responsibility. Do you want to tick off the gods? I'm like, I'm, I'm their representative. I am the man. And so, well, why should we follow the code of Hammurabi? Because the gods told me I get to make up the law. So what I say goes. I have divine authority. And you find that over and over and over in legal codes. So you've got that code of Hammurabi as an exemplar in the Middle East, the ancient Middle East, Middle East to us, they, scholars would call it the ancient Near East. But you've got that code, and God calls his people out of Egypt. And God calls them to Sinai. And God gives them his law at Sinai. Now, what is distinct about God's law that's given at Sinai? from all of the other legal codes, I will include up to ours today. A couple of things. When God gave the law at Sinai, it wasn't God giving someone else the power to write the law, the authority to write the law. It wasn't God telling uh, Hammurabi, I'm giving you the authority, you're in charge, go figure it out. God does not call Moses up on Sinai and say, 
Hey, Moses, buddy, people need some laws. Man, if I were you, I'd, I'd write some and tell them I told you to do it and what you say goes. That's not what happened on Sinai. That's what happens everywhere else. The king typically gets to give the law. But what happened at Sinai is God said, I will be your king, Israel. Israel doesn't get an earthly king for centuries. And if you read 1 Samuel 8, you'll read that God says, what, they're not happy with me as their king? See, the king has the power to give the law. God is the king of Israel. God gives the law. God doesn't assign that task out. And what's most profound about this, and what we need to deeply ingrain in our conscious thought, is that God did not give us a bunch of arbitrary do's and don'ts. God didn't just sit back in his rocking chair, say, "Um, I'm not going to let him do that. What do y'all think about this one? Think we ought to give him a go at that? You know, David Letterman would say that's more fun than humans should be allowed. Let's make that a sin. Let's make that off limits. God didn't do that at all. What God did is God expressed God's own character, God's own ethics, and God's own purposes in those laws. And so as God does that, God instills in those laws what for that time in that culture for the purpose that Israel was existing as a nation. God gave them what they needed to reflect God's character in the ways he wanted it reflected. Now, part of what God wants, God calls us into relationship. That's fundamental, right? God is a God of relationship. We've talked before about the aseity of God. The idea that God is totally self-sufficient. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need our worship. God doesn't make us because he was missing out. He wasn't lonely. He had fellowship within the Godhead. From eternity to eternity. God made us to give, not to get. He made us so he could give to us, not because he needed to get from us. He's totally self-sufficient as God. But he's also moral as God. The Westminster Confession of Faith speaks of God as infinite, personal, and moral. He's personal. He relates. He's not a supercomputer. And he's moral. He has morality. And we can learn about God when we study the law because law expresses his character, his nature, his ethics, his values, his priorities, his mission, his plans. We can uncover a wealth of knowledge about God. That's deep and genuine and real. And if we're not involved in that, we're missing out. And I titled this um, Biblical Law, a Reflection of God's Character. But I could just as easily, easily title it, Finding God Through the Law. Now we are, as a church, people of the Bible. And as people of the Bible, we read and, and, and respect and love the Old Testament And we read and respect and love the New Testament. But I got news for you. I can take the Old Testament and teach everything.
every aspect of our salvation in Christ just as readily as I can using Paul's epistles. Because Paul does it in his epistles using the Old Testament. You read Romans. He's just quoting right and left. Romans can be explained as an outline of Isaiah almost. Plugging in the Psalms where he needs them. And a few other passages. So now we've set the table. Let's prepare the food. Okay? Remember, here's our key. Our key is the biblical law reflected God's holy ethics in a way that would guide Israel in its time and place in history to fulfill God's purposes by walking in God's holiness. So God says, you do this, and you be holy like I am holy. Does it not occur, maybe it doesn't readily occur to everyone. Because I, I, I you know, we've got some lawyers here. We got Mel, uh, Mike, a number of lawyers watch this on the, on the internet. But um, there's a... There's a real distinction about what happens with biblical law and every other legal code out there. If you break the law, uh, you, you, you suffer the consequences if you get caught. Was it, uh, what was the name of that Robert Blake uh, cop guy? Beretta? Okay, I'm really dating myself now, okay? I think it was Beretta? Who said, uh, "Don't do the crime uh, if don't do the crime if you can't do the time," or something like that? Maybe I made that up. I don't think so. But I mean, that's the system now. You know, if you want to dance, you got to pay the band. You're going to do the crime. You got to do the time. But biblical law was different. Biblical law was, you 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 commit the crime, you have sinned against God. That's wildly different. Look, if, if, if you get busted for speeding in a school zone, it's a 20 mile an hour speed limit, you're doing 45 because you're so busy listening to your rock and roll while you're driving through there. Or you're, uh, let's see, Kanye, I guess. Closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A number one with a lemonade. You're singing that while you're driving through, not even paying attention to the school zone. I'm seeing a lot of Kanye fans out there. And, uh, <laughs> and so you're driving through, and you go to court. Now, the judge might look at you and say, that's going to be $150. Or the judge might look at you and say, you've got to take defensive driving. But I can almost guarantee you the judge is not going to say, you have sinned against God. You need to go take a bull and sacrifice it and repent of your sins to God and shed blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Have a good day. I mean, we, we got laws. We violate them. It's a crime. But God said, no, you violate that. You're violating my character. It's an impediment to us walking together. It is something called Sin. Sin, hamartia in the Greek is the idea of missing the mark. You've got a, a bullseye and you missed it. You didn't do what you needed to do or you did what you shouldn't have done. So with that, I divided this up into buckets. Now these aren't buckets of that are hard and fast buckets. These aren't buckets that all the scholars put out there. These are my buckets that I'm putting out there, reading a bunch of scholars and stuff, and if they want to fuss with me, I'm available to fuss. But I'm talking as a lawyer who spent a lot of time meditating on the law of God. So there's a bunch of those laws that are just in the get-along bucket. Now, the get-along bucket includes things like crime, 
And by crime, what I mean is, um, if you steal from someone, that's a crime. And you're going to suffer the penalty that's given in the book, in the law book. There are some that I call social justice because that's a title given to some of them by the writers of the English Standard Version. But there is social justice has a buzzword meaning in American politics and ideology. I do not use the word in the same way. What I'm talking about on social justice is that the courts for Israel, God said the judges are to treat the rich the same as the poor. God said that in a court, the citizen, the Israelite, is to be treated exactly the same as an immigrant. And that a stranger or an immigrant gets fair treatment. That's justice across the social strata. strata. There's nothing in the Bible that says you treat, in the biblical law, that says you treat people differently because of their education, because of their income, because of their skin color, because of their physical disability, because of their, their, the color of their eyes. None of that. Those are man-made distinctions. That's not a biblical distinction. God doesn't make that distinction. There are laws in the get-along bucket that deal with quarantining. They're set up as leprosy laws. Now, let me explain this. I don't want to get too detailed and get too bogged down. Uh, lawyers out there, I'm going to try and explain common law. It's a legal term. The biblical legal code does not exhaustively cover everything that could happen. But it sets out principles by which you can apply it to other things. So it says to quarantine someone who's got leprosy. Until they reach a point where they can show themselves to the priest and show their leprosy is not contagious. That principle would exist in other circumstances. Where and when and how? Well, that's to be figured out in light of other principles. But there are guidance here that says God respects the health of other people. And by the way, leprosy is a great one to use. Because leprosy is associated also with sin in a symbolic way. And God wants you to take your sin away from the assembly. Because sin will, sin is contagious as well. May not be as bad when we get older. But boy, you remember peer pressure when you were a kid? It's real easy to succumb to doing the things of those around you. So you've got the get-along bucket. And all of those things go into the get-along bucket. Criminal law, civil law, court law, family law, property law, immigration. All of those. You've got those principles. Set them aside now for a moment. You've got the ceremonial laws. Those are feasts and festivals and things like that. You've got the atonement laws. Those are the laws that say, I've sinned. What, what do you do about it? How do you make it right before God? How do you restore your relationship with the divine one? You've got the national laws that made Israel stand out. You've got the Ten Commandments. I'm putting them in a separate bucket. These are my buckets recognizing that water sloshes among them. So here's what I'd like to do for about 15 minutes, then we'll let you go. I want to put up here a sample from each bucket of a law. And I want us to get an idea of how that reflects the character of God. Then we'll get into the buckets in a lot more detail in the future. But let's take, for example, the get-along bucket. Now, here's a law that I put in my get-along bucket. You shall not spread a false report. 
You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Because some people are motivated by sympathy. And they'll just look out for the, the whoever it is. Go for the underdog, go for the overdog. God says no. You're not allowed to bear false witness. You're not allowed to, to do a false report. You're not allowed to testify wrong. You're not allowed to lie. This weighs on you. I was at Whole Foods this week. And I'd gotten a bunch of, uh, of <laughs> actually, I just buy the same thing every time. <laughs> but I buy it in bulk. Um, and included in my bulk were a bunch of these uh, 12-pack containers of that uh, fizzy, sparkling Waterloo water. But I also found some diet root beer that looked pretty good and kind of called my name. But I put the diet root beer in the back of my cart. When I got to the register, I checked out with everything. I said to the fellow, do I have to lift up all these cases of, of drinks or can you zap them? And, and, and he said, I can just zap them. So I got two of these. Okay, two of these, two of these. Well, I got out of my car and I realized I had never told him that in the back hidden was the root beer, diet root beer. And he didn't zap it and I didn't pay for it. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah. No, you don't just take it home. Um <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. (laughs) I took it back in. Well, the guy seemed stunned. I said, hey, when you zap me, I forgot to show you I had this one and and I didn't pay for it, so you got to zap this one. He said, oh, I I can't believe you came in. I said, well, I'm not really into stealing stuff. And he says, what? I said, well, I mean, if I take something and I didn't pay for it, that's stealing it. I'm not really into that. And he was like, oh, I hadn't even thought of it that way. I said, well... It is. I mean, you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to lie. Now, why? Well, one reason is to get along well and to have a just society. But why? Because God cares about that stuff, and this reflects the character of God. Look at what you can read about in your New Testament. John 8, Jesus said, when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and the father of lies. God says, don't speak out of the devil's character. Speak out of mine. And Jesus is the truth. He's not a liar. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth over and over and over. And not surprisingly, John, who records that in John 14, 15, and 16, John then himself calls the spirit the spirit of truth in 1 John 5, 6. Hebrews 6, 18, it's impossible for God to lie. This reflects the character of God. God's not going to spread a false report. He's not going to join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. He's not going to do evil in that way. Because God is true, John 3, 3. Let me give you another one. Let's look at the ceremonial laws. And we'll go into more detail about these later. But here's just an easy one. Let's look at the Passover. Exodus 12 is one of the chapters that sets up the Passover. God said, let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. Pesach in Hebrew, Passover. Your lamb, they're going to sacrifice a lamb, shall be without blemish, a lamb for each household, unless your household can't eat a lamb and by yourself, then you join up with others. But your lamb shall be without blemish. Take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. When I see the blood of the lamb, the pure lamb, the lamb without blemish that's sacrificed for you, I'll pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you'll keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute. And that's what God told Israel. 
Now, how is that a reflection of God's purpose and God's character? Behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, of Jesus, over and over again. And Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, this is a Passover. When he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. The Lamb of God is going to be given for them. And then he takes the cup, and after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is the blood of the unblemished Lamb of God which is painted on the lentils, lentil, and the doorposts that causes the angel of death to pass over. And God sets this festival up. He sets up this ceremony and wants them to do it every year because their eyes should be watching to what God is going to be doing. Because that's ultimately a reflection of his character and his purpose for Israel. Let me give you the atonement bucket, just briefly. This will be a statute for you forever. Atonement, that atonement is a fancy word. But it means fixing your sin, making right after your sin. You sin... And that sin disrupts your relationship with God. Because God's not a sinner and he's not going to join you in it. So you fall from God with sin. How do you atone for that? How do you make up for that? Well, he told the people, this shall be a statute forever that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all of their sins. Yom Kippur just passed uh, recently, a couple of weeks ago. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. Kippur, atonement. The day of atonement, that once a year. Used to be Israel would sacrifice on that day, and, and it was an elaborate process. But with the temple being destroyed, what they basically do now is spend a day of reflection and, and, and a time of reflection and and, and a time of, of uh, making amends for sin and things like that. But this was a statute, atonement, maybe made for the people. And it was by killing bulls and goats. And Paul comes in and says, we were atoned, reconciled, made right to God by the death of his son. There was an atoning sacrifice that was the ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 9 says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And when you read the law, that's biblical law, everything. They purify the altar with blood. They purify uh, uh, the, the tabernacle with blood. They purify the people with blood. They purify the priests with blood. They purify the priest's garments with blood. They purify the holy of holies with blood. Sacrificial blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. There is a law of sin and death. If you don't live by the character of God, you die. You become a cancer of what is good. Cancer in the sense of cells that just proliferate and grow out of control and beyond their boundaries. And, and, and that's when we violate the character of God. It's a cancer. And the way to get rid of cancer is to kill it. The, the problem with cancer is it doesn't die on its own. But the way to get rid of it is to kill it. And when we sin, we have become a cancer to the character of God. And the right thing to do is to kill it. And it's always been that way. The law is sin and death. And you not, may not like it, and I may not like it. The bottom line is, I'm sorry. But God doesn't like evil. And is going to destroy evil, even when it's done by really nice people. The good news 
though, is there's a way for this just God who despises evil, who will destroy evil, there's a way for him to do that and still show his love and mercy by becoming the death that should be ours. That's the substitutionary atonement where Jesus is substituted for us. Now, killing the bulls and goats, that was never like going to really fix anything. You can't cover your sin up by killing your goat. That was an expression of God's character, though, that blood would need to come. And it should be an unblemished lamb for the Passover. All right, let me give you a couple more, and then we've got to get out of this. We're taking too long. Leviticus 12, national laws. You shall not eat the pig because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but doesn't chew the cud. So it's unclean. Can't eat camel either. Can't eat crawfish. Can't eat catfish. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you're not supposed to touch the carcasses. Technically, you don't play football if it's the pigskin, coach. They're unclean to you. At least if you do, you've got to be a lineman. <laughs> and not the center. And you're useless on a fumble. I mean, you, you're not even allowed to touch them. You say, well, how does that reflect the character of God? What it does is it shows that his people are set apart. They're unique from everyone else. If you want to go do an archaeological dig in Israel and you're in that area where you're wondering, is this a Philistine settlement or an Israelite settlement? The way the, today even, archaeologists figure that out. First go-to is, are there any pig bones? The Philistines loved their ham and cheese. They could do pork chops like, hmm, but not the Israelites. They find pig bones. It's non-Israelite. You find no pig bones. It's got to be Israelite. But what about that? God's people are always going to be separate from everyone else. Everyone else is called profane. God's people are called to be holy. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We should realize that we're not supposed to be like everybody else. There's a difference between... Look, last week, every thought for the day I did was, how do people know we're Christians? And the answer's got to be something more than, well, we'd be acting like everybody else. No. Jesus said, by their fruits you'll know them. Paul says to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy. I mean, he picked us out. Let the world know we're holy, we're beloved. So let's put on compassionate hearts. Let's be kind to people. Let's have humility. Let's be meek. Let's be patient. Let the world see that's our holiness. It's one thing to say, okay, well, I'm going to go to the restaurant and I'm not ordering pork chops. Okay, that may show some degree of, of holiness for the Israelites back in that day. But our holiness is now going to be shown by something that's even greater. But it's the same purpose. It's to show that we are distinct from everyone else. I want people to say, why are you so compassionate why do you care so deeply when someone is hurt? Why do lives matter? Whether red, white, black, brown, any color. Why do we care how people are treated? Because we're compassionate. We want people to know that we're not like everyone else in the world. We want people to know that we've got kindness and then we treat people with kindness. And when people see that, they're going to say, wait, aren't you an American? I thought y'all all lived on two extremes. 
and this extreme hates that extreme, and that extreme hates this extreme, and this extreme's going to send America to hell, and that extreme's going to send America to hell. And I would love, as a people of God, don't get me wrong, you find your, where you think God wants you to be and how you vote and what you care about and what you're impassioned about, and I'm all for that. I'm not calling for mediocrity, and I'm not calling for anybody to sell out their beliefs of what they believe to be best for this country within God's divine nature. But I am saying, let's be kind about it. As believers, I can't speak for the politicians on either side of the spectrum. But I can speak for me, and you can speak for you. And we need to be people of kindness, people of compassion, people of humility, meekness, and patience. It's as important as an Israelite not eating pig because it's how people will know who we are. Ten Commandments, I don't have time, just wait. I get to preach uh, in the pulpit. Pastor Stephen asked me to preach coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, three or four weeks. I get the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Spoiler alert. I'm going to tell people not to do it, not to commit adultery. (laughs) But meanwhile, we've prepared the food. I've got to give you some leftovers to take home. Here they are. Number one, when the law of God is in one's heart, one's steps do not slip. I want that law of God, but I want it in the fullness of understanding of who the God is behind it. And that means we're plugging in the New Testament because we have the fullest revelation of how God would behave in Jesus, which is God behaving, the total fulfillment of the law. But the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. He didn't even say hundreds. That means I'd rather have the law of God's mouth, what God has said in my life, than be a millionaire, than be a billionaire. Think about that. Great peace have those who love your law. Let me bless you. Father, thank you for a chance to gaze at a reflection of your magnificent holiness and your deep compassion and your kindness towards us. May we model and reflect you into this world in the little things as well as the big. Through Jesus our Lord, amen. Can't wait to see you guys next Sunday. Thank you for venturing out this morning. 